Um, we're going to dive right in. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, and we're going to move to week two of the table, which is a uh, look at the life and ministry of Jesus through the lens of the various meals that he shares throughout Luke's Gospel. And so as I mentioned last week, as we intro the series, one out of every five sentences in Luke's Gospel has Jesus either on his way to a meal, or sharing a meal, or leaving a meal. So 20% of the sentences in this gospel have the table as sort of a central symbol in the story of Jesus. And so uh, this fall, for nine or ten weeks, we're going to look at one of these meals each week, a meal that Jesus shares with someone in Luke. And the, the goal is to not only see ourselves as those who are invited to the table with Jesus, meaning the table as a symbol of relationship, but also to become the kind of people that extend that invitation of grace and hospitality and reconciliation uh, to those around us in this city. And so um, the table, the shared meal, both in the time of Jesus' life and ministry as well as in our culture today, is, like I said, a symbol of relationship. To share a meal with someone is an invitation to be with them. It's an expression that I'm interested in you, that I want to know you. I want to be with you. And so Jesus has this huge table, if you will, where throughout his entire life and ministry, he's constantly extending this invitation to all different kinds of people, from Pharisees and teachers of the law to his disciples to, as we looked at last week, sinners. And he says, I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want us to share life in relationship together. And so this morning in Luke chapter 7, we're going to come upon the second meal that Jesus shares in this gospel, and it's the feast of Simon the Pharisee. And so I've, I've asked Don to come and read the entire scripture for us. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We join me in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for this moment, for this day that you have created and invited us into with you together. Father, I'm thankful for each person that you've drawn here to this gathering this morning. And we're thankful for your presence among us. And we would ask that you would use our time in your word to continue the good work in us, to keep forming the life of Jesus in your body. I pray that your spirit, the same spirit who inspired the writing of these words would inspire our hearing and our doing of them as well. So we love you, we thank you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we have a story about two people who are sharing a meal with Jesus. Simon the Pharisee and this woman who we might call the sinful woman. So first, you have Simon the Pharisee. If you don't know, a Pharisee is essentially a member of the religious and culturally elite. And Luke tells us that Simon has invited Jesus to a banquet in his home. And so the, the scene, if you can imagine it, is <clears throat> there's a table And around the table, it's not chairs like we would typically sit, but it's sort of these low couches where you would recline. You would lean on your side with your feet kind of sticking out away from the table. And when a banquet like this was thrown, it's most likely what you would call a symposium, which is kind of an ancient forum for dialogue and debate. And so in the ancient world, many of the important political or philosophical or theological conversations would happen around a table. And so you'd have these central guests that are kind of the debaters, and they would, they would sort of have this formal dialogue, and then all around the table would be all kinds of other people as well. So you would have the servants that are there to kind of serve the guests, and then there was essentially, uh, it wouldn't be weird for others to kind of be gathered around to listen in and hear what was being said in the symposium. And so that's kind of the scene. Jesus is invited by Simon to this formal banquet in his house, and they're discussing theological things of some sort. And then Luke tells us, that this woman shows up. And in verse 37, we're told that she had lived a a sinful life in that city. 
okay? Which is essentially his way of saying she was a woman of the city, a woman who had a certain kind of reputation in that city, right? Most likely a prostitute, somebody who people would have recognized for what she does in that city. And so she's kind of hanging around in this symposium at the outskirts of the table, listening to Jesus and Simon the Pharisee have this discussion, and she's brought with her this little alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and her plan is to use that to anoint Jesus' feet in an act of worship. But the way Luke tells the story, you kind of get the sense that before she can even do that, she becomes overwhelmed with emotion. And she begins to cry. And her tears begin to fall on Jesus' feet. And that's the point in the story when Simon and everyone else at the table notice her. So she's kind of making this scene. This isn't something you would want to do at a symposium. You're supposed to just kind of quietly listen from the outside. But all of a sudden, all the eyes are on her. And instead of turning away, she actually goes deeper into this moment. And she, she kneels down before Jesus, and we're told that she lets down her hair. Okay, so this is something that a woman would never do in public. And she starts to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She kisses his feet and pours the perfume on them. And Jesus kind of sits there and lets her do this. Which apparently totally confuses and annoys Simon. And he begins to ask these questions and think these things like, what is going on? Why is Jesus letting this happen? And it kind of frames up this whole discussion for the rest of the story. And so here's how I want to frame this up. We have a table here, and we have two people who are both seeking relationship with Jesus. So first, Simon the Pharisee, and then this sinful woman. Both of them pursuing Christ. It's important that we see that. So what you need to know is that the Pharisees were utterly opposed to Jesus. So the only other Pharisee that we see in the New Testament who is seeking out Jesus was Nicodemus, and we're told that he did it at night. So nobody would see him, so no one else would be around. For Simon the Pharisee to initiate dinner with Jesus was a really big deal, a controversial deal. This is something for him that could have cost him his reputation or his role in the life of the community. This is a scandalous step for a Pharisee to extend a dinner invitation to Jesus. But apparently he's so drawn to the person of Jesus that he's willing to risk that for the sake of pursuing him. So you have Simon seeking Jesus out, and then you have this sinful woman who's puddled up on the floor, weeping, washing Jesus' feet with her hair. It's a story of two people, both pursuing Jesus. But here's the thing. In the end, one of them is forgiven and blessed, and the other one is rebuked and rejected. 
So let's, let's compare and contrast for a moment these two approaches to Jesus and see what's happening here. I'd like to argue that the way Simon the Pharisee approaches Jesus is strictly intellectual. He comes at Jesus to study him as a subject. He's looking for an interesting theological conversation. So he comes to Jesus with his head and only his head. So look in verse 39. Simon is observing this beautiful, shocking, compassionate act of Jesus. And rather than having his heart moved at all, he's detached. And he's processing this moment strictly at a head level. He's thinking it through. He's analyzing and collecting data and trying to come to logical conclusions theologically about what's happening in this moment. And he's totally missing the beauty and the significance of what's happening right before his eyes. It's like if Spock is over for dinner, right? He's, he's just analyzing strictly logically but missing something so deep and rich that's happening right in front of him. Because Simon's approach to Jesus is strictly intellectual. Now, it's good to ask questions, to take an intellectual approach to the faith, but the problem is that that's all Simon is doing. And then we have this woman. And instead of just bringing her head before Jesus, she brings her whole self, doesn't she? It's not that she's not thinking. It's not that she's not processing or paying attention to the interesting conversation that's happening at the table, but I would argue she's actually carrying out the implications of that conversation to their most logical conclusion, which is if Jesus really is who he says he is and has come to do what he says he's come to do, then an interesting conversation isn't an appropriate response to that news, is it? If this really is God in the flesh who has come to us and given himself to us and invited us to be reconciled to God through him to have our sins forgiven, then for her, we can't just sit and talk about that. It begins to well up within her. She begins to realize this is God himself who's come. And so she loses herself. She brings all of herself before Christ which I would argue is the appropriate response in the presence of God. J.I. Packer once wrote that the end result of all theology should be doxology, meaning that anything that we learn about God should lead us to a place of worship. It shouldn't just be more head knowledge or doctrine or facts or verses that we can quote about God, but to learn about God, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of him should produce in us this kind of overwhelming love and adoration and praise. And that's what's happening with this woman. Simon comes at Jesus just with his head, but the sinful woman brings her whole self. Simon comes to Jesus detached and impersonally. And the woman comes engaged and intimately. And then Jesus turns to Simon in verse 44. And he says, 
do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet, and on he goes. Jesus essentially calls Simon's attention to this woman. Simon, again, this Pharisee, member of the religious and culturally elite, and Jesus says, I want you to stop and look at this woman. Look at how she's approaching me. Look at how she's pursuing me. And you can imagine Simon just being confounded by this. This respectable, accomplished Pharisee thinking, wait, you want me to do that? That's what you're looking for? Like to cry? To kiss your feet? Like, that's what you're looking for, Jesus? Are you kidding me? Like, I just thought we were going to have dinner. I just thought we were going to have an interesting conversation. And that's what you're looking for? And Jesus essentially goes, yeah. That's what I'm looking for. And so Jesus is harnessing this moment to try to help invite Simon in to this relationship that he desires with him. And so you have these two approaches to Jesus that end with these two different results. And just for a moment, we'll bring this into our world. And one of the things I've noticed over the last month of being around you guys, you, come on, Kev, This is a very smart church. You guys are one of the most, dang it, thoughtful, (laughs) one of the most thoughtful communities of Christ followers I've ever been around, and I love it. It's one of the things that was such a draw for me to come and to join this team and join this community, a church that's thinking and engaging hard questions related to faith and culture and theology and philosophy and kind of considering how all these things fit together. I love it. But what would be the danger? The danger is that we, as thoughtful Christians, would fall into the same trap as Simon the Pharisee. That we would fall into this tendency to reduce Jesus to an interesting subject to be studied. And that we would come at him strictly with our heads And then as a result, we would end up missing the depth and the beauty of the invitation that he has for us. And so I I see myself in Simon. I see my tendency to reduce God to a subject I study. I'm I'm a theology student. This is what I'm doing. And you have to remember that the goal of theology is doxology. Not simply to fill our heads with more interesting thoughts or doctrines or ideas, but that our knowledge and understanding that we gain of God through scripture or whatever else would lead us to a point where we begin to look more like this woman than the Pharisee. 
And so Simon's really wrestling with that. It's kind of freaking him out. And we see kind of this this inner thought process where he's going, who is this guy, Jesus, who's letting this sinful woman touch him? Like if he really is who he says he is, if he really is the holy God of the universe in the flesh, how could he allow this sinful woman in his presence? And so he's processing and he's freaking out and he's going, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for this touchy-feely spirituality. I just want to have a discussion. So let me show you a painting. I know I showed you a painting last week. I'm really not like the art guy, but I... uh, Every once in a while, I find something that really connects with me. This is a painting entitled The Feast of Simon the Pharisee, obviously depicting this very meal by Peter Paul Rubens, 1620. And um, I love, you can kind of see the image where there's the main kind of debate happening around the table, and then you have all these other characters that are kind of listening in and observing what's happening. Okay, so you have the three main characters in the painting, Jesus there on the right, Simon on the left, and this sinful woman in the middle. And if I had to guess that, uh, that there was one spot in this narrative that Rubens is trying to capture, I would guess that it's verse 44. You see Jesus' hand extending down towards this woman, speaking to Simon, saying, Do you see this woman? He's saying, she gets it. She's not going to reduce me to an interesting subject to study. But she's actually taking this thing where it's supposed to go. Her theology has led her to doxology. She has come to a place of worship and adoration. She's not coming at me just with her head, but with her whole self. Do you see her? So that's the first thing. Now let me show you something else. If you go to the zoomed-in image of this woman. What color is she wearing? Well, she has a blue robe on, but you can see that outside of her blue dress is this yellow cloak that kind of seems to be falling off of her. So oftentimes, in the Renaissance era, the colors of people's clothing carried much significance. And I don't know this for sure, that this is what Rubens was doing. But it seems to me significant that she is surrounded by this yellow uh, piece of fabric that seems to be falling off of her. In the Renaissance era, yellow was often the color used to depict a prostitute. That is kind of the symbol that they would use. That this is a sinful woman in that city. They would be clothed in yellow. But the yellow's falling off of her. And beneath, she has blue. Which is often used to depict purity. Almost any portrait that you'll see of the Virgin Mary, what color is she wearing? She's wearing blue. So there's something going on in this story. And I think Rubens helps us to see it. Even if he didn't mean to do it, it still helps, right? Jesus is saying, do you see this woman? 
Not just this prostitute, this sinner. Do you see this woman? And it's like Jesus is helping Simon and the rest of us begin to see her the way he sees her. Not just defined by her sinful past or her sketchy reputation. But Jesus is able to see her as a sacred human soul. The yellow is falling off and the blue is shining through. And Jesus is going, I want to help you see her the way I do. And so if you spend enough time at Jesus' table, this is one of the things that's going to begin to happen in you. If you take seriously the invitation of the gospel to come and be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, then inevitably Jesus is going to begin to confront the way you would tend to look at others and he would call you to learn to see them the way he does. And so I'll just ask you this question. Whom in your life is Jesus asking you to learn to see the way he does? I don't know who that is for you. I know there are people in my life that I have a really difficult time seeing the way I'm sure Christ does. But at Jesus' table, He's constantly asking us, do you see them the way I do? And so Jesus calls our attention to this woman. And he's showing us so much about who he is and what he came to do. And if you know the story of God then you know that this invitation to bring our whole self into relationship with him, this isn't a new idea. Listen to what God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to his people who were exiled in Babylon. He said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when? When you seek me with all your heart your heart. So what God seemed to be saying to his people back then is the same thing as what Jesus seems to be trying to teach Simon and the rest of us. That not all who seek him will find him. Who is it that will really find Jesus? Those who seek with their whole heart. And so one of the main ways that God has invited us to seek him, one of the main ways that we're invited to the table of Jesus to have fellowship with him in his company is through the act of prayer. And all different kinds of prayer, whether that's the prayers offered in corporate worship like we do here, whether it's the set times of prayer that you or your family would practice throughout the day, or whether it's simply just the ongoing dialogue that you uh, carry on with God throughout your week. This idea of prayer, this invitation to, 
to sit at the table with Jesus is one of the main ways he's given us to seek him. And so through the lens of prayer, the way of relating to God, what would it look like to learn from this woman to bring our whole selves into relationship with Christ? Henry Nouwen was a Dutch priest and professor who wrote an essay on this topic entitled Uncensored Prayer, which I love. And I want to read a paragraph from that. It's kind of a long quote, but try to follow along. He says that our inclination is to reveal to God only what we feel comfortable in sharing. Naturally, we want to love and be loved by God, but, but we also want to keep a little corner of our inner life for ourselves, where we can hide and think our own secret thoughts, dream our own dreams, and play with our own mental fabrications. We are often tempted to select carefully the thoughts that we bring into our conversation with God. What makes us so stingy? Maybe we wonder if God can take all that goes on in our minds and hearts. Can God accept our hateful thoughts, our cruel fantasies, and our bizarre dreams? Can God handle our primitive urges, our inflated illusions, and our exotic mental castles? This withholding from God of a large part of our thoughts leads us onto a road that we probably never would have consciously wanted to want to take. It is the road of spiritual censorship, editing out all the fantasies, worries, resentments, and disturbing thoughts we do not wish to share with anyone, including God, who sees and knows all. So I don't know if you can relate to that at all, but for me, it gives me a lot to think about. Where am I censoring myself in relationship with God? What parts of myself, the weird, ugly, messed up parts of my story or of my life that I feel like maybe God is too holy to handle, right? And so I have a censored spirituality often. that I, It's kind of my default mode. That I only want to present to God, the redeemed or righteous or good parts of me. I'm only comfortable coming to a church gathering or praying with others or engaging in relationship with God, however that looks, when I feel like I'm doing good. And now one's going, don't censor your spirituality before God. He's not looking for the cleaned up, edited version of you. Those who will seek and find God are those who seek him with their whole heart, with their whole self. So again, I'll ask you, what parts of yourself are you trying to censor in your relationship with God? What are the things that try as you might to keep from, from God? And as now in observes a God who knows all and sees all anyways. You just see how ridiculous that is, right? And that's what we see in this woman. Simon coming strictly intellectually just with his head, detached and impersonally, and this woman coming unedited, uncensored, all of herself, her sketchy reputation, her sinful life. She trusts Jesus with it all. And in the end, you have two people pursuing Jesus. 
and they each get something. And I would argue they actually each get what they wanted. Simon gets an interesting conversation. And the woman gets her sins forgiven. And the salvation of her soul. And the peace and blessing of Jesus. Now the tricky part for us as we're trying to learn from Jesus to see others the way he sees them and to see ourselves even as this sinful woman bringing our whole self into Jesus is, well, what about sin? Maybe that person that you have a hard time seeing the way Jesus does, you're going, well, they, they legitimately have hurt me deeply or they have hurt others that I care about. They've lived a reckless or destructive life that really has done horrible things. Like, what, what do I do? Do I just ignore their sin? Do I ignore that yellow cloak? Do I pretend that it doesn't exist? And what about my own yellow cloak? What about the own, my own messed up parts of my life and story? I just pretend those aren't there and come to God? And, and that's kind of what Simon's wrestling with. He's going, but what about the sin? What about the shame? What about the guilt? What do you do with that? Do you just ignore it? And he's kind of going, Jesus, if you really knew, if you weren't so ignorant, you would see what's going on here. And he's kind of accusing Jesus of ignoring or downplaying or belittling the sin of this woman. And I have a feeling if we were to ask Jesus, well, what about her sin? You just ignore it, let it fall to the floor around her? And Jesus would say, are you kidding me? I didn't ignore her sin. I died for her sin. I took her sin and yours upon myself. I covered up my blue robe with her yellow cloak. I gave her my righteousness, but the only way I could do that was by becoming her sin and yours. And her reputation of being a sinful woman, Jesus would say, that became my reputation of a sinful man tried and crucified for her sins and the sins of the world. So it's not that Jesus is saying, ah, oh, sin's not that big of a deal. He's saying, are you kidding me? I forgave her these sins as I died for them. Which means we have a really incredible invitation to come to Jesus uncensored, unedited, because he has taken on our sin. Our, all the stuff that we would want to hide from them from him, he knows it and owns it intimately. And he has put it on himself. And so first, Jesus teaches Simon and us to see this sinful woman. And secondly, he teaches us to be her. To be the one who is forgiven much. And Brendan Manning once wrote, at Sunday worship, many of us pretend to believe we are sinners. 
Consequently, all we can do is pretend we've been forgiven. So my encouragement for us today is to see this woman, to learn from her, to open all of ourselves before God, that we might also experience the forgiveness of sins, receive the forgiveness that Jesus has given, experience it. Experience the salvation, the mending, the holistic forming and reforming of our souls and that we may also experience the, the peace and the blessing of Jesus. So Antioch, may you seek Christ and may you find him as you seek him with your whole heart. Will you stand with me? Our Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the incredible invitation we have to find ourselves at the table in relationship with you. And Lord, please don't let us ever forget or downplay just how much it cost you to bring us to your table. And we thank you that you haven't simply just ignored our sin, but that you have taken it upon yourself, that you have died for it so that we might be forgiven and restored back to you. So I pray for our community here as we seek to live the life of Jesus in this city. Would you help us to have the faith and the courage the authenticity and the boldness to bring our whole selves before you. Not because we're so good, but because you are so good. Because of all that you are and all that you've done. We trust you. We pour out our hearts to you. I pray that you would help us to move our minds down into our hearts to pursue you and love you and worship you with everything we have, every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.